everyone. My name is Joshua Gilliland, one of the attorney bloggers on The Legal Geeks. I have two special guests today to talk about comic book law. They are Chief Walker Esquire and Thomas Crow Esquire from New York. Gentlemen, how are you guys? Excellent. Excellent. Thank you for having us. It's great to have you. I've seen you guys on Twitter. I've know your adventures at going to New York Comic Con, and I know your publications, such as the Pocket Lawyer for Comic Book Creators. So, gentlemen, how's the great state in New York? Lovely right now. This is Thomas Crowell speaking. I know you can't see me right, uh, right now, but it's great. We're experiencing sort of a second summer and very much gearing up for New York Comic Con. So I think, Chief, uh, how many years have we been doing New York Comic Con now? Well, since, uh, since 2007, so uh, whatever that is, almost, uh, almost uh, nine years, something like that, yeah. What inspired you guys to start doing comic book conventions? Well, this is, again, this is Thomas. Uh, hopefully until you hear our voices, I'll just sort of preface it that way. Um, I started out as an entertainment and IP attorney uh, right out of the gate. I was actually a film producer uh, back before I turned to the dark side and took the bar. And actually, Sheaf and I have been working together in that capacity. Sheaf was an audio engineer for many years, too. So we worked together as buddies. We both went to law school. And I started doing lectures at film conventions because a majority, I would say, of my practice is indie film related and has to do with people making reality television and TV shows. It's, it's sort of in my blood. And Comic-Cons were just really starting to hit the, the public sphere. There have been cons around since the 70s, but New York Comic-Con was really starting to come in on its own in the mid-aughts. And I thought, well, you know what? We're really just talking about creative intellectual property here. The, the, the media of a comic book uh, may be a different media than an audiovisual work, but largely the rights that protect them are the same. And the interest that the creator have uh, in protecting them and the means that they they need to be aware of are largely the same. So Sheaf and I decided to uh, put on our best lawsuits and to cosplay our way to New York Comic Con, where we've been lecturing ever since. Isn't it a little weird that if you go to, say, Legal Tech New York, you don't see lawyers in cosplay? It's, it's kind of disappointing. <laughs> well, I always felt that our, our suits, uh, our business suits cosplay, were as out of place at, at New York Comic Con as a, as a stormtrooper or, or a brony at, uh, at, uh, at a Legal Tech convention, yes. No one's like Thurgood Marshall. I mean, you could, you could, you could be a John Marshall and, and it would look good, but like, yeah, no one does that. No, one, no one's that bold, but, but dare to dream. Well, let's, let's talk about your love of comics because you know, when you look at your material and, and I encourage everyone to go to Amazon and check out the pocket lawyer for comic book creators because there's a lot of good stuff in there that explains complex issues. But, uh, you know, Sheaf, who's your favorite comic book character? Um, I've actually been a longtime fan of, uh, of the Arrow, uh, the Green Arrow, back uh, when I was reading him. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I actually grew my goatee and have styled myself as the, as the Green Arrow lawyer. Um, and I'm actually a really big fan of the, uh, of the television show, the adaptation. Um, it is, it's, got the, it's got the grit. Um, they've, they've done a really good uh, origin story reboot. And um, that's essentially my favorite is, is Green Arrow probably for, for the longest time, though. Uh, the Avengers, obviously, and Thor and Hulk and all of those going way back into the to the 70s as we're showing our age at this point. 
quite all right. I have similar feelings. And, and Thomas, uh, who's your favorite character? I'd say, I'd say the number one in my pantheon of superheroes would be Doctor Strange. So I can't tell you how excited I am to see the Benedict Cumberbatch movie coming out. And, uh, you know, my father actually collected comic books in the 60s. So I grew up with these original comics. And, you know, if you want to geek out, I still have uh, mint-in-bag originals of the Avengers and Spider-Man. And uh, I'm counting on those books to put my sons through college. Uh, but uh, definitely Doctor Strange. And if you notice... In my book, The Pocket Lawyer for Comic Book Creators, we've really gone to a lot of uh, effort to recreate uh, comic book artwork and to create our own characters. And there's a little nod in there in the book to Doctor Strange. I have a lawyer character who helps talk you through all these difficult legal issues. His name is uh, J.D. Esquire. Uh, attorney, uh, J.D. Esquire, superhero at law. And uh, he is floating in a law library that's somewhat similar to Dr. Strange's uh, sanctum. So we've, we've done a little nod to Dr. Strange in the book. I encourage everybody, I'm sorry, I encourage everybody if they, if they aren't going to buy it on Amazon to go to their local bookstore and, and look at these illustrations. Um, Alan Noriko, a wonderful uh, illustrator and artist. Um, I say bring From DreamWorks. Right, I worked with DreamWorks and a number of other another companies. Great illustrations, and it does it allows the the, the concepts, the legal concepts, um, to have a have a, a visual um, process that allows it to be that much more accessible. I, I can't say enough about that. So, two things from that. First off, Thomas, did you read the oath, and what were your thoughts on it? <laughs> okay, so uh, here I, I did not read the oath, so I don't have thoughts on it. So I'll have to, rather than fudge an answer, sorry. <laughs> it's, it's okay, that was a surprise. I wasn't expecting Doctor Strange. He, he too is one of my favorite ones. And when I got back into reading comics in 2006 during Civil War, my brother gave me the oath as a trade paperback. And I was super impressed because the oath is a doctor's duty to their patient. And, oh, and so, oh, okay, I see. Yes. and so it's about Dr. Strange trying to save his servant who has cancer. Oh, wait oh. a minute. You know what? I did read an excerpt of that. Yes, I did. That's right. And doesn't he meet a, uh, a doctor who performs sort of backroom surgery on, uh, on superheroes? There's a, a female uh, protagonist who helps him out. The night nurse who's in the yeah. daredevil TV show. So, nice. So yeah, that that's it's all connected. But they they did that, and it's it's a great great story about Doctor Strange effectively trying to fight cancer. And so I, I would encourage anyone to check it out. It's a wonderful story. Well, turning to the the artwork in the Pocket Lawyer for Comic Book Creators, what what inspired you guys to to one write it and to do it in comic form? Mm -hmm. Well, the, uh, the Pocket Lawyer for Comic Book Creators is actually my second book. The, uh, the first one is The Pocket Lawyer for Filmmakers, which I'm sort of happy and humble to say is, is one of the better-selling film law books. Uh, and when my publisher came to me and said, okay, look, what's, what's number two? Uh, I said, well, you know what? I'm such a comic book geek, and no one has written 
a book for creators that's a dedicated legal guide. Uh, goodness only knows there are a lot of books out there that help you draw wonderful comic book characters. I'm sure a lot of your audience has drawing comics the Marvel way, which, uh, which I had as a kid. Uh, but I did a survey of the industry and found that whereas there's a lot of books that talk about Comic Con, but not a lot that gave you the nuts and bolts of how to protect your property and how to do a collaboration agreement or what is termination of transfer? Why should I worry about it? So I said, you know what? It's always good to be first at something. So let me write a book. And because I have such a great relationship with Focal Press, they were behind it 100%. And uh, they get, created a budget that allowed me to hire a really good artist and to have a lot of fun with it. So I'd say the goal with the book is not just to, to answer that, uh, that need, which is comic book creators need to have their hands on a useful legal resource, but it's also to do it in a way that pedagogically I can get the point across without sounding like a lawyer. Because let's face it, I, lawyers can be some some of the best writers around, but if we write like lawyers with a capital L there, no one wants to read that, especially not artists. So the fact that we were able to work closely with a comic book artist and create some very visually appealing ways to introduce some of the difficult concepts like work for hire or joint authorship, I, you know, we've, we've heard such great feedback on the book that it's really been uh, opened a lot of people's eyes as to some of the dangers that they're facing before they've fallen into those dangers. So it's nice that it's actually been a very helpful resource for a lot of people. I do want to state for the record, in no comic book bubble does the word whereas appears. So uh, <laughs> well done there. Because when you talk like a lawyer, it, it can scare the hell out of people. Because right. when people get a letter from a lawyer and it's dealing with, even if it's supposed to be helping you, it can scare people. Right. And essentially, that, that was the, one of the goals of the book was to inform people and to, to make them less afraid of the legal language, that if they have a contract in front of them, that they don't have to sign it if they don't understand it. And actually, we encourage them not to sign it if they don't understand it and have someone explain it to them. But the book goes, a, a, goes so far in that it explains most common contract agreements in the, in the, in the, in the industry, um, things to be aware of when you are um, hiring somebody or being hired by somebody else. And we found that an informed artist and informed creator makes a, a better future client because they, they come to you before the disaster has occurred. They come to you before there is a crisis and that we are better able to help somebody when there's something we can do to help them. I feel the same about folks who are launching massive Kickstarter campaigns and creating amazing projects that they raise $100,000 for, and they didn't incorporate anything in advance. There's no partnership agreement. There, there's, there's nothing legal there, and they could get into trouble uh, if they're not careful. And, and there are folks who just think that talking to a lawyer is immediately cost prohibitive. So like material like this is golden. So I, I really commend you guys for, for what you've done. Thank you. Thank you. So for all of our non-lawyer listeners, could you give us a thumbnail definition of what a copyright actually protects? Sure. Uh, 
One of the key rights that you're going to be concerned with in protecting your comic book property is copyright. Uh, there are a lot of other intellectual property rights that you may uh, be dealing with trademark law or to the extent that they're propertizable rights and ideas, but let's just focus on the big C, copyright law. Copyright is really a bundle of rights. It is the right to copy, which is kind of a no-brainer because that's in the name. It's also the right to distribute the right to public performance of a work, the right to display, and the big heavy lifter for us comic book creators, the right to create derivative works. So when I talk about these rights, what I'm saying is that you, the copyright owner, and there's a little parenthetical there because we're trying to make sure that you are the copyright owner, if at all possible, but if you are the copyright owner, you are the one who has the exclusive right to these things, unless you contract that right away. Now, I talked a little bit about derivative works there a moment ago. What that means is this. You create a copyrightable character, a copyrightable comic book, and if you own the copyright to that, you are the exclusive owner of the right to turn that into a published and distributed comic book to take that comic book and create a derivative work of it. A derivative work is a work that's derived from it, like every single motion picture that has been derived from a comic book. Every single action figure that has been made from that motion picture, or all of the myriad video games that arise from that as well. So the point being is that you got to hold very closely to where that copyright uh, is and hopefully you can retain a large portion of ownership or at the very least, if you can't do that, make sure that if you transfer that copyright, that you're always going to have some attendant, sorry to sound like a lawyer there, but some follow along right to receive money whenever that copyright is exploited. And that's really the, the 10,000 foot view, as I like to call it, the name of the game of, uh, of comic book law. Wonderful exp explanation. And if you didn't sound like a lawyer at some point during that, people, you know, they, they want to hear a little of that. So we'll, <laughs> they just want to be sure. It's a way to, like, you know, test. Uh, is this a lawyer? Yeah, so well done. Well done. And, and what's fair use for, for again, for our non-lawyer listeners? Well, uh, fair use, I'll jump in on this one. Fair use is, um, a, a, uh, is a right under the Copyright Act that uh, permits the, uh, the, the use of a portion, um, a small portion, large portion to be determined by a judge, of someone else's copyrighted work without their permission. Um, and it's, it's very um, labyrinthian in terms of how it's decided, but, but essentially it, it means that they can't sue you for using that portion of their work. But it, it is determined by a judge using factors. Um, so it is, in fact, a defense to copyright infringement. So it's not something you can just, it's not like a, a Magic the Gathering card you can throw down when somebody issues a, a, a subpoena to sue you. Um, but the, the, the general rule um, is if you take a portion of something and it becomes a small portion of a larger work. So you've transformed the tiny bit that you've taken and you've added it to what you've created. Um, the, the element that you are looking at uh, is a small part of your larger work and you've transformed it into something else. Um, you've, you've used it in a fair use manner, um, essentially. So looking at the world that we have today, so there, there are the 
horror stories from the past of the way some people feel that they were exploited with work for hire mm -hmm. and there there've been the lawsuits with like characters such as Ghost Rider and the Superman litigation and long, long list of, of cases have taken place. Today we have people who are self-publishing and doing things on their own. And so if you were, you know, uh, some young comic book author and artist came to you guys and said, hey, we're trying to put a book together, what advice would you have for them for negotiating deals and things that they would have to look out for to protect themselves? Sure. Um, I think the first thing that I would try to establish is where is the, the core property coming from, really the paternity of the copyright. So is this something that you guys together created? Is it something where one of you created and have written out the story and then you tapped the other one on the shoulder? Because what I'm getting at is from a starting perspective, who has created this copyright? Is it something that you both have looked at something else which might even still be under copyright protection that you've unbeknownst to you taken and developed something and created an, uh, an unpermitted derivative work. So I have to, as an attorney, drill down first and say, how was this copyright created? The next layer of advice I give has to do with, okay, you guys want to work together, your buddies. How do you want to work together? Is it a situation where one of you owns the copyright and is hiring the other? Is it a situation where you're going to be partners, collaborators? And that's really going to drive the type of deal. Once I've sorted out how it's owned, how you guys are working together, and I have to be really, really clear and emphatic here and underline it with a big yellow marker, what I'm about to say, is that all deals that involve a copyright, an exclusive copyright, right must be in writing this is not an area for a handshake here guys you have to have it in writing and signed by the copyright owners there's no if ands buts or wiggle room here that's what the law says so you've got to get a contract even with your buddy even though the, the fact that this is somebody you've been in college with and and partying at your fraternity with you got to get it in writing once I've concerned myself with making sure that the agreement between those creators is in place, now I can start concerning myself with helping them get to a publisher. And one of the great things that I think the, um, we've spent a lot of time in doing in the book is giving you some inroads to how to attract publishing companies. Because as you pointed out, Joshua, um, DIY publishing is on the rise. Do-it-yourself publishing is on the rise. A lot of people are taking that route. But let's face it, if you want to maximize your exposure, if you can get to an IDW or a Marvel or a Dark Horse or a DC, obviously Marvel and DC are the, are the big, you know, holy grails, um, then that's going to instantly put your name out there in more comic book shops than if you did a DIY distribution. So we show you how to do that. But negotiating that publishing agreement, if it's with an IDW or a Marvel with that third-party publisher – Gosh, that's where comic book creators get so uh, fouled up because as a creator, especially if you're a first-time creator, you just want to accept that first deal that comes across the transom. You don't want to lose it. You don't want the publisher to suddenly go, oh, wait, you're pushing back here a little bit? I'm sorry. You got a lawyer involved? Whoa, whoa, sorry, buddy. Here's a tip and trick that I really want to hammer home. If you lawyer up for the publishing agreement negotiation, guess what? 
publishing companies will take you all the more seriously. And as a transactional attorney, I'm in the job of trying not to blow the deal. So there's a, now and I know Josh, what you're, you're a litigator, so I'm, I'm not casting aspersions on litigators, but I do think to some degree, there's a little bit of a, um, we may, we can start from a different place when it comes to how we approach a transaction. And those times I have gone um, into a negotiation with somebody who's primarily a litigator, and it's a little bit of a different approach than, than a transactional attorney. And, um, just know if you're a creator out there, uh, attorneys are in the business of trying to get you the deal that you want. And we don't always have to be bulldogs that you would want us to be in court. Huge difference between transactional attorneys and litigators because a good transactional attorney can make sure you don't require a litigator later in life. And I'm all for that because people don't go to litigators because things are going right in their life. And in theory, people are going to transactional lawyers because they've created something and they have something neat and they need help bringing it to the market. So that's the, it's the beauty of what, what you guys get to do as opposed to, you know, my line of work where we're picking up the pieces and doing forensic images of hard drives and figuring out how to best do document review. So yeah, you, you guys have a lot going for you. Now, uh, Chief, do you, do you have anything to expand upon? Uh, well, yes, I was I was going to say um, the, the the money saved question is usually it costs you X number of dollars to to hire an attorney for this transaction. Shouldn't isn't it better just to to do it myself and put that money in my pocket? Well, money money saved at that point is is you end up you could end up in litigation and you could end up not getting what you think you had. Um, and I will say that there are times where, as a tra- transactional lawyer, we're trained negotiators, and, and you need, need somebody to be the bad guy sometimes if, if it comes to that. Um, and as the attorney representing the, the person and the property, you're, you're not taking it personally. This is a job, and we, we do our job um, with passion, but also dispassionately as to um, it, it's not our baby, as it were. So... Um, if you can, if you can let the professional do the negotiation, obviously fully informed um, based upon what you want out of the deal, what kind of money you're looking at, and you you take the experience of that attorney and you use their counsel as to what is a realistic um, uh, reply, what is a realistic counteroffer to what they're offering. If, if it's your first book, you may not have as much leverage as your tenth book, but you want there to be a tenth book. So if you can build in the options, because that's that's the deal that they're offering, or if they're not offering options, if you can, if you can move the numbers, if you can, if you can, you, everything is negotiable up to a point clearly, but if you don't have someone who is familiar with what to negotiate on and what is not negotiable, you know, in a, in, by, by sort of industry standards, you're, you're in a bad place. Um, and you'll probably sign, as Thomas says, you're so, enthusiastic at that point. You're so grateful to have somebody want your work after you've been the blood, sweat, tears, and, and, and trauma um, that you are more likely to take the first offer, sign it, and realize that it was not as good a deal as you thought it was because you really didn't understand what they were offering. So, I, I can imagine that happening frequently because you're dealing with folks who 
probably have never had a positive experience with the legal system, that they've never had to hire a lawyer before, that their views of lawyers are based upon pop culture and not necessarily positive, and, or they're just scared, or they think it's too expensive. Right. Have you been following you know, the Kickstarter movement, the crowdfunding, GoFundMe uh, programs that, that or campaigns that people are doing to raise money for, for works of art? And have you guys thought about that at all? Uh, yeah, I'll jump in here. Um, as I mentioned at the top of the program, I also do a lot of work in indie film. And so, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, indie film, there's not a film that I've worked on in the past couple of years that hasn't had some Kickstarter component. Uh, so I think uh, yes is the answer. There's uh, comic books that are using it to, to great effect uh, and filmmakers and uh, recording artists. So, And this, I guess, sort of comes back to, to what I was saying originally, which is that I'm, I see less and less. The more I practice, I, I don't see the distinctions as clearly between comic book and film and comic book and game. I see it as sort of one intellectual property that I'm following through different media. Uh, so I will see people who are doing a comic book that is the first iteration of a screenplay that they're writing and the hopes to turn into an animated film and so on and so forth. Uh, and one of the great things about Kickstarter uh, is that it is a means of getting donations without many strings attached. Of course, from a legal perspective, we have a couple of interesting issues that are arising with result of Kickstarter. One, people not delivering what they say they're going to. Uh, and we've started to see a couple of lawsuits arise there. And number two, we're getting into some interesting areas, hopefully uh, in the next couple of years, where people might be able to actually float securities via a crowdfunding platform. The SEC has been uh, weighing in on this uh, for far too long, in my opinion, under what's called the Jobs Act. I'm not going to get too technical here, but what this may allow people to do is, as opposed to Kickstarter, which is basically give us some money as a donation and we will give you some stuff, whether it's a free comic book or a tote bag or what have you. Uh, this new scheme may allow people to actually get a profit participation in a revenue stream, which uh, as you know, or people listening out there that implicates securities issues. And so it's a much broader, uh, much more complex to use Sheaf's word labyrinthian scheme that we have to uh, dive into. So yeah, Kickstarter is an important component now of virtually every artist I deal with. And for the record, just because the word labyrinth was used, no one has to dress as David Bowie and, unless they want to. So. <laughs> Chief, any, any further thoughts on, on those who are doing crowdfunding? Well, I will say the, uh, the, the, the most successful one in, in, recent, in recent years was the, was the Veronica Mars, uh, which I actually was a participant in. Um, and that was unique because you had something that was beloved and it needed to come back. And, and they essentially were creative in their, in their pitch. They had a little movie and you got to see it and there were updates. Um, just as many successful and, and, and really successful uh, Kickstarters are ones that don't necessarily work. And as a creator, that is a good learning experience as well to see how to market and how to raise money and how to pitch something. Um, and that is that's sort of part of the, it, it's an area in which you years ago didn't have that 
chance to sort of try and fail and see what works the next time. Um, and obviously social media uh, has helped uh, permit all of these avenues of, of promotion. You can tweet something, you put it on the Facebook, you can, you can vine something, you can do any number of things. So I think it's the confluence of those um, that make it um, exciting. And one tiny little bit on the, on the securities. Um, but one thing I think it will encourage that with obviously the possibility of profit participation is the, is the greater opportunity to raise uh, greater funds. And then at a certain point, you might start losing the, the, uh, the individual sort of fund. I own 1% of the next um, Avengers movie or something. You, you'll have hedge funds and, large investment groups, which may be good because you can raise more money and make more movies, but it will, it may lose some of it. And this is sort of nostalgia. It may lose some of its innocence of the, of the, of the kid with his iPhone making his own movie kind of thing. Yeah, my, I agree with that. My younger brother and his fiance did a couple very successful Kickstarter projects. They did one, the first one they did was Huck Finn robot edition <laughs> where they, reacted to New South Publishing taking out uh, the N-word and replacing it with Slave. And so they decided, you know, they did this Kickstarter video and they said, you know, that doesn't go far enough. Let's remove all references to Jim's humanity and, and we'll call him Robot Jim. Mm. And so, uh, and, and they did a brilliant video and they raised their, their funding goal in less than a day. And it was, it was fantastic. The second one they did is, is for a movie coming out uh, a little later. They're, they're in post-production about basically life in Hollywood, and it's an apocalypse movie. And they, when they did their Kickstarter, they did a new video every day. And so they filmed them over the span of four months where my brother didn't shave. And so each week they would go out and film as his beard got bushier. And, and so when they do this massive campaign, they had a new video every day showing their deterioration and clothes falling apart and everything. So it's, I mean, there are folks out there who do a lot for these things and it's, it's really impressive. Well, let's talk about where can people see in person? Uh, what's coming up next for you guys? Well, New York Comic Con is the uh, the big show, uh, and uh, I'm going to be doing two lectures there. The first is a CLE, and this is I'm really excited about actually. This is the very first CLE collaboration between the New York State Bar Association and New York Comic Con, and uh, I'm going to be lecturing there for lawyers, teaching them how to do these deals. Uh, so that is uh, upcoming on uh, October 8th, the first day of Comic Con, and I'm sorry to say it's already been sold out so that's uh, it's both good and bad because i know there are still a lot of lawyers who'd love to see that but uh the one that isn't uh sold out but maybe standing room only if previous years are any indication is when sheaf and i are doing on that saturday uh the 10th uh it's called the comic book uh the critical contracts for the comic book creator i'll say that again critical contracts for the comic book creator and that is at 5 15 on the 10th of October at New York Comic Con. And right now the location is room 1B03. I don't know if they're going to change that, but uh, it's typically get there early because as uh, Sheaf and I can attest to, past couple of years it has been standing room only. And that's really such a, 
such an amazing thing that there's so many people who are passionate about learning how to protect their properties that, um, that we do get such a great response. It's really, I think, a testament to how serious comic book creators are at uh, wanting to protect their, their properties. You know, these are really people who are very serious about treating it as a business, and it's always nice to be lecturing to, uh, to enthusiastic, very attentive people like that. And it's a great opportunity to, uh, to, to meet Thomas and myself. And uh, we, we usually have uh, questions and answers at the end. And we also, it's an opportunity to meet us and, and, and uh, maybe ask a hypothetical that's uh, not specific uh, to the facts of your case and um, have an opportunity to, uh, to in, in, engage either one of us uh, to, uh, to advise you. Um, and it's also an opportunity to, ask questions about the book, maybe get your book signed, uh, all of those things. Mm-hmm. And, and I also want to put in a plug, if I may, to, for a couple of the other panelists. And I think one of the special things we have uh, when we present, it's not just lawyers up there. Yeah. Uh, we usually have friends, colleagues, clients uh, who are working comic book creators. This year, we're going to have David Gallagher and Alan Robert David has written for Marvel and DC. And uh, uh, Alan has a couple of self of books that he's written uh, that are published by IDW. And what we like to do is give the audience a chance to pick the brains of creators who have done it. People like themselves who've actually um, been hired and paid real money for their real work. Uh, Because it's one thing to listen to lawyers uh, yammer on about how one should and shouldn't do something. But it's another thing to really be able to pick the brains of successful creators who just a few years before might have been sitting in the audience uh, and and get some tips and tricks on on how to reach out and get a publisher themselves. Right. And they speak for valuable experience and 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 the q during the q a they also are there to field questions and there is there is nothing no substitute for experience they they truly have have worked as hard as they had and have gotten where they've gotten and they are they are uniquely qualified to to answer some of those uh questions from from aspiring creators and and artists of all kinds so i've, I've put a lot of thought into the differences between legal shows and comic book geek conventions. And one of the observations I have about the excitement at the comic ones, and not that you don't really see at the legal ones, is the comic book conventions are generally looking forward to something that's coming out or gets into how to do things. The legal shows frequently are like backwards looking. Like, this is what happened, and it's not necessarily how-to or, or looking ahead. And I, I think that's something that would really help legal conferences and adopting some of that mindset for panelists. So I really applaud what you guys are doing at New York Comic Con. Now, to move forward off of that, what do you guys really enjoy about cons and going? And, and Chief, why don't, why don't you start on what you enjoy about con life it's the one place where you will see the most free expression of love for 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 comics and for movies and for anime and for manga and it it the creativity is 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 remarkable um last year my favorite um incident was some cosplay my wife and i were there my wife's a photographer and there were two people dressed as Tetris pieces and they saw us and my wife asked if they could, if we could take their picture and they said, wait a minute, we need to assemble. And so these two people in these 10 foot wide 
cardboard, painted with, with love and, and crafted, created a space and assembled and it was just the, the it was just wonderful to see that kind of that kind of, and they'd probably spent the whole year building it and figuring out the mechanics of, of and, and the structure etc and then the other is the kids there it is still the place where kids have have an opportunity to to see their favorite characters in person a lot of people whether they're cosplayed or or uh, or professionals or otherwise and it's the it's unbridled joy um, and enthusiasm, and it's just a great place to be. Yes, there are an awful lot of people, and it'll probably be the, the one place you will you will never see that many people in one place um, with that amount of uh, that amount of cosplay. Thomas, your thoughts? Well, I second everything that that Chief says, and I'll I'll add to it that it's also a wonderful place to make business connections. So if you're a comic book creator um, and you want to get your work seen by a publishing company, this is the place to do it. Reach out first before the convention, know who's there. Very often uh, comic book publishing companies will have what's called portfolio reviews. So if you're an illustrator and you want to get some feedback on how you're doing and whether or not it's in the Marvel style or the DC style, you can actually sign up for uh, a portfolio review for a lot of those uh, publishing companies and meet face-to-face with an editor. So, you know, rather than sitting on the other side of a computer sending something into the luminiferous ether of the internet, here's a chance where you actually go face-to-face. But there's a flip side to this too, which means that the day that you're going to be meeting with that editor, do not dress in your best brony cosplay. All right, you don't want to be Pinkie Pie showing your portfolio. Make sure to treat it as the business interview it is. Doesn't mean you necessarily have to be in a suit and tie, but it does mean you have to be clean and uh, your fingers shouldn't fingers shouldn't be stained with Doritos. You should be there treating it as the business uh, it it actually is. But people at a con are very open, are very enthusiastic, as Chief said, and because of that, I think you're going to get a lot more. Um, sort of casual FaceTime with people than you might in another environment. And I think this, what I'm about to say is true of all business. Uh, and it's been said in many different ways before, but, but relationships drive it. And the more you go to a comic con and see the same people year after year after year, you stick in their heads. And if that person is a publisher, they're going to remember you next time when you have a new book to show them. So very much treat it like a business in addition to a fun time. Right, because people like to work with people they like to work with. And if you are open and polite and forthcoming and prepared, as Thomas says, both both if you're dressed well and you've got your portfolio and you have if something to show, um, your best work and the opportunity to and make the most of that opportunity because that's that's where you, the con is the place that you can do it. It's fascinating, gentlemen. I really appreciate your time. I encourage everyone to either you know, go check out uh, The Pocket Lawyer for comic book creators because it is wicked cool. And gentlemen, I, I really hope we can do a crossover panel sometime. At we a, would love that. It's, yes, yes. Because again, there should be a we won't uh, we'll figure out a nice splashy name in the you know tradition of crisis or secret wars or something like that but it would be fun to do a a big crossover panel uh, because there are a lot of geek lawyers out there and and people do enjoy this a lot so uh, i wish you the best at new york comic-con and and really appreciate your time 
thank you so much. It's been an honor being here. Thank you, Joshua. Thank you, everyone, and stay geeky, America. Stay geeky.